We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. I know that there's folks still finding their seats from the choir. We did have a business meeting, so I'm just going to keep moving so we can, we can uh, make up some lost time. Before I get into our sermon, I want to let you know that today, in case you didn't know, is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And what we're talking about, if you just glance down at the text this morning in Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26, deals in some sense with this. I think this is always interesting to me because one of the questions that comes up for so many folks whenever uh, they find out you do, you know, for me, I do sequential through a book of the Bible um, teaching, and they say, well, you know, what, what, how do you let the Spirit lead in that way? And the thing is that the Spirit can lead and set things up um, a year in advance, right? And we kind of, sometimes kind of forget that. And he did that here today because we're talking about this idea of murder. And it, it's interesting. And what that means, and we'll get into that in just a minute. We're not talking this morning about the idea of abortion in the sermon, but I want to talk about it just for a minute and about what the church um, should know, I think, about this. As of 2017, the stats I found were, were being put together every three years. So the last time it was put together was 2017. There were 862,320 abortions that um, happened in the year 2017. That's 2,362 daily. In 2017, also in North Carolina, there were 29,500 abortions that happened, which is one-fifth of every single pregnancy. So out of every pregnancy that happened, or out of every five pregnancies, one of those ended in abortion. We're not going to go into this topic very deep this morning, but what I want to just remind us is, is to help us think about this. For me, I don't like to think about this sometimes. It's easy just to pretend like it's not even happening. But we have to understand that this is happening. Since the year 2000, more children have been killed in America due to abortion than Jews who were killed by Hitler during the Holocaust. And so for us, I want us to be aware of this. It's easy to want to just kind of, whenever it comes up, just kind of shield our eyes and pretend like it's not happening, but it is. I know statistically speaking, there, there are women in here who have had abortions. I get it. Um, God's word of grace to you is this, that there is forgiveness for that. There is. God's grace, there, there is not, that is not an unforgivable sin. And our God is good to extend grace even for that. But we as a church must be praying that this comes to an end. We have to pray for God's grace on our nation. And we have to especially pray for God's grace to help us understand what we have to do to do our part in bringing an end to abortion. What can we do to help alleviate some of these issues? Um, there are so many, I don't know the exact numbers on this, but if every single church were to adopt or to take in a kid who is in the foster care system, who is orphaned, or, or, or in some way does not have parents in the home or can't be in the home with their parents, if every single church committed to do that, there would actually be more churches, every, every church in America, there'd be more churches um, than there are children who need. Right? So there'd be some churches, as every church said, I want one kid, one family in our church wants one kid we would run out of kids to take in. And so the church can do much by committing. There's, there's lots of different ways, and we can talk about that another day. You can come talk to me and say, I'm passionate about this. What can we do? There's all kinds of things. But I ask, if nothing else, you would pray and ask God to give you wisdom individually for you as an individual and your family and for our church to know what we can do to be bringing this to an end. 
And there's a number of different ways to go about that. Now this morning, we're not dealing with abortion in particular, but we're specifically dealing with the sanctity of all life. Like I said, this wasn't intended. I didn't look on the calendar and say, okay, it's Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So we should look at what, and I'm just going to try to line up the whole Sermon on the Mount series with this. But God and and his sovereignty has saw fit to make this line up. So let's read and see what he has to say. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inerrant and infallible and all-sufficient word that you have given us to know your heart, to know your will, to know how we should live, to glorify you. We know that these things aren't just given to us, um, though certainly the primary thing is to glorify you and to make you look great in our obedience to them. We also know that all these things are for our good, the good of us individually, the good of our families, the good of our relationships, the good of our church, and even the good of the world. Help us to understand your word this morning and what it means to us. By your Holy Spirit, make it clear to us how these things should be speaking to us individually, to me individually, Lord. Empower me to speak your word rightly this morning, to say exactly what you intend for me to say and nothing that would come from me in my own uh, limited, very limited human wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea this morning is this, that we keep God's law by putting contempt to death through reconciliation. We are to keep God's law by putting contempt to death through reconciliation. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told us what a Christian looks like, what they are to be in the world, and how they are to interact with God's law. What they look like is the Beatitudes. How we are to be in the world is salt and light. Then he goes and he starts to explain the law and our relationship to the, to the law. How we're to live as citizens of God's kingdom. And he goes on and he tells us that we must have a righteousness that far supedes, or sorry, far goes above and beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. And if we don't, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, He's going now to explain what exactly does he mean by that. And he starts off saying this, You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, we can look at this, and and a lot of people take these. We have have six places. He says, you have heard it said, right? Which is interesting because he doesn't say, you have read or it is written. So many other times Jesus says it is written, and he's telling us what exactly was written down in the Scriptures. But he's, he's very specific here. You've heard it said to those of old. So why is he making this distinction? Why is he making this difference? 
Well, here's why. And we're going to see that he goes six different places. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. You've heard it said um, about divorce. You've heard it said about swearing oaths. You've heard it said about retaliating. You've heard it said about loving your neighbor. So we're going to be walking through these things and seeing what it is that was said at one point, what was good about that, and what was not good about that. Now, here's what we're not saying. Jesus isn't saying it was written. You have heard it, or it, you have heard it, you have read it, I should say. He's not saying you have read this in the scripture because what he's talking about here is where folks have taken God's commands and they've added to them in some way. A lot of people come to this and they say, ah, see, Jesus is bringing about a new kind of morality. The law was, it was just okay. It was kind of old and archaic, but now Jesus is bringing about something greater. But he's not saying that, or he would have said it is written. He says, you have heard it said. Here's what we have to know about the Jews at this time. 400 years ago, they returned from Babylon. They'd gone into exile because they had worshipped other gods for uh, centuries. When they came back, they weren't speaking Hebrew anymore, which is what their scripture was in. They were actually speaking and reading Aramaic. And so they come back, and their scripture is in Hebrew, but they're reading and speaking Aramaic, and then all of a sudden there's a problem, right? Because the common person can't look into God's word and say, here's what it says. It's a very similar situation to where many found themselves at the time of the Reformation. They didn't have the scripture in their language. They had to rely on a priest to tell them what the word said, because it would be read in Latin to them. And they'd say, here's what it says, and here's what you should do with it. And no person could go individually and say, well, actually, here's what God's word says, and I don't maybe necessarily agree with you. But what happened is they come back and they're scribes. Well, first of all, they're rabbis, these teachers who would say, sit down and listen to me, read to you what the law says, and give you my interpretation of it. And so that was what was happening. Those rabbis and their teachings were eventually adopted by these scribes and Pharisees that Jesus runs into so often in his ministry. And Jesus has now come and said, listen, they said some good stuff, they said some bad stuff, but I'm here to set the record straight. He says, you've heard it said... But in verse 22, he says, but I say to you, and he's going to show us something this morning. He's setting the record straight because for them, they were only hearing part of the story. They're only hearing a bit of the law, part of the interpretation. And what they were hearing in particular was that which was concerned with the externals and not the internals. They were hearing that that was concerned about what you're doing with your hands and not what's happening in your heart. But 1 Samuel Chapter 16, verse 7, says this, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, here's the thing. What we do with our hands, what we do externally, is important. But it's not all. God is concerned with the heart. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. That's from another place. So don't murder. That's just the sixth commandment, right? And you'll be liable to the judgment of those civil authorities in your community. That comes from another place in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And so, what does that mean? He's right that it has been said, do not murder. Now, what is murder? This is where we get confused a lot. The King James, in some places, actually uses the word kill. And uh, the word kill is okay, but for us, we, we usually, I mean, kill is just anything, right? You can, like, you step on an ant and you kill it, right? Um, did you murder that ant by stepping on it? Well, some people would say yes, okay. Sorry. <laughs> the, 
So I just remember, it's like 2020. Some people will say, yes, that aunt, you did murder that aunt. Um, killing to murder someone is to, with malicious intent, with premeditation. Not self-defense, not the just taking of a life in a just war, or anything like that, but just for personal reasons, with ill and premeditated intent, intent killing someone because you don't like them, because they did something you don't like, murder. This is what he's speaking of here. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And if you do, you're going to be liable to judgment. You're going to be liable to this legal system in the nation. But what they were not concerned about was God's final judgment. They're concerned with external sin and the consequences that come in the here and now. For so many of us, I fear that... Our biggest concern when it comes to our, our spirituality, our, our obeying of God's commands, our trying, us trying to do what is moral and right, is so often concerned not with the judgment seat of Christ one day, but with the consequences that come here and now, the social consequences of not coming to the church, the social consequences of sinning in this way or that, instead of the spiritual consequences. But Jesus goes deeper. He says, you've missed it. You're concerned about murdering and the judgment that happens externally in your community. But I say to you, don't feel contempt. Now you look and you say, I don't see the word contempt anywhere. And you're right. For me, I wanted to sum up the ideas here. So this is my summary to say, don't feel contempt in verse 22. Contempt is that feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration or it's worthless or they're worthless or they're deserving scorn. Okay? So he says, Don't feel contempt. And hopefully you see where I get that as we go through. The first thing he says is about anger. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, that doesn't just mean a person who has the same mom and dad as you, right? But it's those people who, in this context where he's speaking right now at the beginning of his ministry, he is likely talking about fellow, like your neighbor and fellow Jews. A lot of times when we talk about brother in the Bible, we're talking about fellow Christians, But for our purposes, we're going to say anybody, okay? Let's talk about anybody. Don't feel anger towards anyone. And if you do feel angry with anyone, you are liable to judgment. So anger is just those strong feelings of dislike for someone's actions or just maybe just for who they are, right? He goes on to say also to not insult them. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, Now, this council is the Sanhedrin. So the judgment he talks about before is kind of that local court. The Sanhedrin are the 70, this group of 70 men who were kind of the the ruling elders of their day. He says, if you go on to insult someone, the word actually there is raka, right? Um, So, you know, don't go around calling people raka. Because the idea there is idiot, empty-headed. A fool, right? Well, and fool's actually the next one. So idiot or empty-headed is the idea. Insulting someone, belittling them, talking bad about them. Finally, he goes on to say, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, for a lot of us, we think back to a place where Jesus, Jesus calls people fools sometimes. So what's going on with that, right? The idea here in particular, is, is actually the word uh, moros, where we get the word moron, okay? So um, there's your Greek, a little bit of Greek for the day, moros, meaning where we get moron. Calling someone this was essentially at their time calling them someone who is unregenerate and unsaved and consigning that person to hell, uh, according to one scholar. 
This is the idea of looking at someone and saying, you're not just foolish mentally, but spiritually. It's really saying you have no worth of any kind. And each of these are liable to judgment. We see increasing in, in severity. Judgment to those local folks, judges. Judgment to this, essentially the Supreme Court of their day. Judgment of hell. So, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry or insult or call someone a fool. In other words, don't feel contempt for anyone. He's going to explain why. Because for us, that is the same. He is concerned. We're going to get to that in a minute. Let's keep moving, and we're going to, we're going to tie this all together. So, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't feel contempt. And now we're going to see in verses 23 and 24 his call to, first of all, be reconciled to one another instead. So when Jesus says, don't do this, but instead, he says, do this. And we're going to tell you, um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but I want you to understand that the concern here is that the, the, the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, their only concern was with the negative aspect of the law. Don't do this. But Jesus, and they, they had forgotten somewhere along the way that whenever he says, don't do this, there's also a positive aspect to the law. To not murder someone doesn't just mean to not pull out a gun and shoot them. It also means the positive things. Instead, do this. Show the kind of love towards them that would keep you from ever getting to that point of wanting to actually murder them. So he says here some of the positive things. We need to be, first of all, don't murder, don't feel contempt, but instead be reconciled. That is the message that he has here. You think you're a keeper of the law because you've never shot someone, because you've never stabbed someone, because you've never, whatever way you could kill them? You're not a keeper of the law just because you've never killed someone. He says the sixth commandment is broken by merely feeling the kind of anger and contempt for someone that might one day lead to that. And his call to you, Christian, is to be reconciled to that person before God and before man. James Montgomery Boyce said this, Men always find it easier to substitute the ceremonial aspects of religion for the demands of a clear conscience before God. Now we see this here in 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you want to be right before God? Going and making a sacrifice, going and giving a gift to God on the altar is not going to cut it. That doesn't matter if you're in a wrong relationship with other people. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11, and then verse 15 says this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And that is spreading your hands out in worship. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Not necessarily physical blood. But the blood that comes from the kind of anger that would lead one day to the breaking of the sixth commandment through actually murdering someone. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this, 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. We are called to be reconciled before God with other people. Whenever we come into worship, for us, what you're doing right now is essentially the equivalent of what he is describing here, to come in to offer your worship to God. And he says that I am so concerned with the state of your heart that for you to come in and sing songs as loud as you can and give money and put it in the offering plate and to take really good notes during the sermon, which I know a lot of you do, right? To do all those things are great, but they don't matter one lick if you are at a place where you're not reconciled with your brother or sister in Christ. They're worthless. They're meaningless. You really should just be home watching football instead. We have to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ before God in worship. And if not, then what we're doing here is just worthless. It's a waste of time. But we also are called to be reconciled before man. Verse 25 and 26 says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There are real consequences that come from not being reconciled to folks, even in the public square. Not just in church, before God in worship. But to have this attitude. Because here's the thing. When we step out these doors, we represent Christ. We bear the name of Christ. Whatever job it is that you do, as you do that, you bear the name of Christ. As you drive to work and honk at people, which I'm guilty of because you get frustrated, right? You bear the name. And maybe you don't do that. I moved away and went to places with lots more traffic. People were more free to honk. And so I kind of brought that back with me. But the Lord's working on that with me. You bear the name of Christ when you do those things. When you're in the line at the grocery store and you get frustrated with people because it's not going as fast as you think it should. And you snap at uh, the, the person, the cashier. You bear the name of Christ. And we even bear the name of Christ when, for whatever reason, we're accused of something and have to go to court. The way that we handle that, we bear the name of Christ. And he says, it's going to be better for you if you get with that person and you try to get that thing settled and handled before it ever goes. Because you bear the name of Christ. See, we want to be reconciled to God before men because we don't want to destroy our witness. To be angry at someone or to be in conflict with someone and to be unwilling to find some kind of reconciliation with them has the potential to destroy your witness, to take away your ability for people to see Christ in you. And if we don't have our witness, what do we have? So we're called to be reconciled before God in our worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to be reconciled before man for the sake of our witness. So we're reconciled before God for the sake of our worship. We're reconciled before man for the sake of our witness. For the Christian who's here this morning hearing this, consider what Romans 12, verses 17 through 21 says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We've been called to something greater. We've been called to Christ-likeness and dealing with those who we do not have a good relationship with, those who we do not have a right relationship with. For so many of us, there is some slight that happened between us and another person, something they did that we didn't like. And for us, we want to just sit and be bitter with them, to not reconcile with them. And you're hurting yourself and you're hurting the church and you're hurting your witness. Repay no one evil for evil. If they do evil to you, you don't, you don't give that back to them. Because imagine if Christ did the same to you. But so often the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we love, doesn't change how we interact with other people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, as far as the ball is in your court, you are to live peaceably with all. You are to be making peace with all. Not trying to avenge yourself, not trying to make yourself look better in the situation. But instead, trusting that God, if you're afraid they're going to get away with something, understand this, that you got away with something, in a sense, right? In a sense, it didn't get gotten away with because Christ paid that penalty. We're so afraid that what, well, what is going to happen, they're not going to get theirs. What a total anti-gospel attitude. If our enemies hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't, overcome by, don't be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Boyce says again that Jesus taught that the only righteousness acceptable to God is the divine righteousness that in time brings about a full transformation of the personality. If we're truly in Christ, if we truly have his righteousness applied to us, if we've truly believed in him, it is going to change how we act towards other people. In time, it brings about a full transformation of the personality. For the Christian, I hope that that's the case. And I hope that you are aiming to not just be like the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees who say, as long as I've not murdered them, I'm good. Jesus says that's not how it works. Live in a way that doesn't just see God's commands in the negatives, that is the don'ts, but also as the positives. Don't do this, but instead do this. For so many of us, we need to become biblically literate so that we know the heart of God. That's why we're doing this thing where we're reading the Bible all together. We hear places here and there. We generally know the Ten Commandments, right? But for so many of us, we don't know the heart of God. If we only look at the Ten Commandments, we see the negative aspects of it. But throughout the rest of Scripture, God's moral law is fleshed out. To say it's not just about what you don't do, but it's also about what you should do instead. So church, I hope that for you, you're searching the scripture. if, If you're not reading along in that church reading plan, that's fine. But be in the scripture and search the scripture and become biblically literate so you don't know just the basic exterior commands of God, but you actually know his heart and know what you should do instead of doing those things. Live in a way that seeks to keep the sixth commandment by living a life of reconciliation. The kind of reconciliation that cuts to the root of the sapling that is anger and contempt. And when it's full grown, very well could lead to murder and death. Put contempt and anger to death. That's how you keep God's law. 
This is the beauty of God's law that's so often lost when we simply declare, yeah, that Old Testament stuff is over with. Yeah, the Ten Commandments are fine. They were good, but they're gone now. There's a beauty to them because they're not just don't do, but they are instead do this. But are you as concerned with assassinating someone's character to other people as you are with the thought of killing them in cold blood? Because so often we're willing to assassinate the character of someone. We're willing to go and run them down in the way that we talk about them. Killing their character, character assassination, is still breaking the sixth commandment. And are you as concerned with the fact that you're killing your witness as you are with killing them in the minds of some people? Some of the questions we have to ask ourselves is this. You say, well, what do we do? Ask yourselves these questions, I hope. Do I hold any grudges or anger or bitterness or hostility towards someone, somewhere, in some way? If we're honest, more often than not, the answer is going to be yes, because you're a human. You're not, you're not in the glorified body yet. We're not with Christ in eternity. So the answer is probably going to be yes, okay? The other question is this. Am I responsible for any grudges or anger or bitterness or hostility that someone has against me? That's the interesting thing, because first of all, he, talk, he starts off in the first half of this talking about the fact of you being angry and insulting and cursing your brother. But then he goes on in 23 and 24 and 25 and 26, those, both those accounts, he talks about if your brother has something against you, if someone is going and you have an accuser accusing you of some crime, for so often for us, we say, well, we're, I'm good as long as I'm not the one who's actually doing the sin, Right? But some, or if I'm not the one who is doing the accusing, if I'm not the one who is angry at someone, for so often we actually forget about the fact that maybe we have hurt someone. Maybe we're responsible for grudges and anger and bitterness and hostility that they have towards us. I've not been doing this pastoring thing long, but in the five years that I've been doing it on, on a senior pastor level, I have found that every time I have a counseling session with, some, with two people who are having an issue, I have never found a case where there was not fault on both sides. To varying degrees, yes, sometimes there's 90% and 10%, sometimes it's 50-50. There's always fault on both sides in a conflict. Somehow, some way, sometimes it's 99% and one. But still, we have to recognize there are times when there are things that we could do to cause this stuff to come about. The other thing we have to do, the third thing we have to do, Christians, is this. Distinguish between anger towards untruths versus an anger towards those things that have harmed us in some way. It is one thing to be angry to be intense about untruths said about God. We have to understand that. Jesus came and he was overturning tables. And, he, and there, there, was, there was some anger there, a righteous anger. Paul tells us, I can't remember the book now, but he tells us, be angry and do not sin. Which implies that you can be angry and not sin if the anger that you feel is because of God and his glory. But so often the anger that we feel is because we've been harmed in some way. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
church, understand this. We are called to be folks who reconcile because God has reconciled with you. This is at the heart of all the understanding of conflict in the Bible. Is that God could have looked at you and said, you know, they are just the worst, right? And he'd be right, amen? Are you just, I mean, I'm just the worst a lot of days, right? Right, honey? Just the worst. He could have looked at you and he said, they are just the, like, what is their problem? What is their deal? You know what? I'm done with them. Forget them. And he could have done that. And would he have been absolutely justified to have done that? To every single one of us, yes, yes, a thousand times, yes. But he didn't. He chose to not count their trespasses against them. He didn't count your trespasses and sins against you. But instead, he has reconciled you to himself. He has taken you being at enmity with him, and he has brought you and him back together through the cross. And now what he has given you is the same ministry of reconciliation. To be on wherever you see a breakdown in a relationship between you and another person to do whatever is within your power to be reconciled to them. And I guarantee you that it will never look like going to a cross, at least not physically. It will feel like that some days. It is you actually taking up your cross in the spiritual sense and denying yourself and following Jesus. But I guarantee you that it will never look like, you, like Jesus taking, getting up on the cross and taking on the sins of the whole world. We're called to reconcile because God has reconciled you. Now, finally, to the person who's in here and who's not a follower of Jesus yet. You've never trusted in him to be your savior. I want you to understand something. 1 Samuel 16, 7, we're going there again, says this. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Maybe for you, you feel like, okay, I've come to church, so I'm working on stuff, right? That's good. I'm glad you're here. Really am. It doesn't save you. Throwing money in the plate as it comes by doesn't save you. Getting into a Sunday school class doesn't save you. Helping an old lady across the street sometime this week won't save you. Whatever it is, those outward things, those are fine. Those are great. Those are good. But God looks at the heart, and he understands that your heart is all about you. And reconciliation is absolutely needed. You have to understand, though, before that reconciliation can ever happen, just who you are. And who you are is someone who is a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm going to tell a story of a guy named Tugun Crowley. Crowley. We'll go with Crowley. In May of 1931, New York City witnessed the capture of one of the most dangerous criminals the city had ever seen up to that time. They called him Tugun Crowley. He had shown himself to be the kind of man who would kill at the drop of a hat. And so sometime before his capture, he had been parked at the side of the road when a policeman came up to him and asked to see his license. Without saying a word, he draws his gun and he cut the policeman down. And then as that officer lay dying, he actually uh, jumped out of his own car, took the policeman's revolver, and fired another bullet into his body. So the question is this. This guy probably understands that he's a pretty bad sinner, right? He's someone who's just reprehensible in the eyes of society. You would think, right? Well, we know what he thought because whenever he was finally captured in his girlfriend's apartment at the end of an hour-long gun battle involving hundreds of police, there's a a blood-stained note that was discovered that had been written by him during the battle. And it said, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would, do not, that would do nobody any harm. 
Later, he was sentenced to the electric chair. When he arrived on death row at Sing Sing, he didn't say, this is what I get. I deserve this. But instead, he says, this is what I get for defending myself. And that man did not blame himself for any single thing that he did. We have to be careful because this is the natural state of man. To look at ourselves, and in spite of the fact that God's word works, it's like we talked last week, God's law is a mirror that shows us exactly who we are. And here it is, and it's a good mirror, right? It's a mirror with bright lights on it showing us who we are. We want to look at that mirror and say, well, I'm not a murderer, so I'm good. God says, yeah, you've never killed someone with your hands, but you've killed them with your heart, through your anger, through your insults, through your assassination of their character. You have killed them. For some of us, we say, I'm not that bad of a person. But he lets us know we are. We have to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. They had all these added laws, but they didn't even achieve the basic righteousness of God. Because they didn't understand that with the negative command of don't murder came the positive command of reconcile with people. They didn't need to obey those commands just negatively, but positively. Anyone, there are so many of us who can keep ourselves from murder and adultery, as we'll talk about next week or in a few weeks, the next time we come back to the Sermon on the Mount. But only someone who is empowered by the Spirit of God can begin to be in a constant state of reconciliation. God calls for a law that is higher than what the scribes and Pharisees could ever put together. And only he provides the means of you achieving it. You can't do it on your own in your power. He has to do it after he has given you his righteousness, his positional righteousness, and he gives you his spirit to be able to live out his commands imperfectly, but beginning to do it. And we have to understand God is concerned with our actions. He is. He is concerned with our actions. But he's not merely concerned with our actions. He is concerned with my heart and your heart. We have to understand that actions without heart is meaningless, and heart without actions is a lie. Would you be reconciled to God? If you are reconciled to God, would you reconcile to others in light of the great reconciliation that he has provided for you? Let's pray. Lord, as we just take the next uh, five more sermons after this and peer into the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus says to us, help us to understand that it's good to try to follow your law, to understand the negative commands. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But help us also to remember there's positive commands that come with it. Instead, do this. And may we understand for us that just because we've never unjustly taken someone's life doesn't mean that we've never broken that sixth commandment. May that be something that for the unbeliever who's here this morning, the one who hasn't followed Jesus yet, would pierce their heart and cause them to see that the only way they can be made right with God is through Christ and the cross. And for the Christian who's here this morning, would this truth pierce our heart to understand that we have a lot of work to do and a long way to go. We will never achieve perfection on this side of eternity. But by God's Spirit, we can be becoming more like Christ every day. Lord, would you give our church and the people who make up this church hearts that want to fulfill your sixth commandment, not just by not murdering people, but by reconciling 
Every time there's division, every time there's anger and frustration, every time that we have a break in relationship, that you would lead us to reconcile the way that you reconciled with us. Lord, may your gospel inform the way that we do every single thing we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.